Children, you are dismissed to teach me to worship. Who loves Christmas? Right? There's lots of reasons to love Christmas. Whether it's just time off from school or time off from work, time with family, whether it's the festive events that we go to or ugly sweater competitions that we enter, we should all love Christmas. And for no better reason is that we celebrate the time that our Savior was born. But here's the problem. What if we only celebrated Christmas? What if that was the only holiday that the church celebrated each year? We're drawing to a close our stay in the upper room. We've been here since chapter 13. And over the past several weeks, we've looked closely at what Jesus is teaching his disciples. We've been invited to sit as though we were a fly on the wall to what he is preparing his disciples for after he leaves. Over the past several weeks, we've, we've looked at what he has said, what he has promised. And yet again, we find the disciples in the exact same place. They're confused. They have a lot of questions. Back in chapter 13, Peter was asking questions. The apostle that Jesus loved, the author of this book, John, was asking Jesus questions. In chapter 14, we see Thomas and Philip asking Jesus questions. And here in chapter 16, we find the disciples again wanting to ask Jesus more questions. For they were saying to themselves, as John says in verse 16, what is this that he says to us? And we might ask ourselves sometimes, you know, what Jesus said, I've got a lot of questions. I don't really understand what he's talking about. Maybe we're not quite sure what Jesus really meant when he said something. Maybe we're not quite sure about who Jesus actually was. Maybe we're not quite sure what we're supposed to believe concerning Jesus. But I say this, we should only ask those questions if we didn't celebrate Easter. If we were a church that only celebrated Christmas, we should have questions. But we are a church that celebrates Easter. Because everything, everything that Jesus has taught his disciples in the past four chapters is all dependent upon one thing. The resurrection. He prepares them for the cross. He tells them to love others as he loved us going to the cross. But all of his promises, everything that he's said, everything that he's trying to explain to his disciples means nothing if there's not a resurrection from the dead. He's made promises that he was going to bring the Father glory. He made promises that the disciples would experience new life through the Holy Spirit. He made promises that he would not leave them as orphans. He made promises 
that the Father would reveal himself to them. He made promises that they would remember everything that he had taught them. He made promises that they would bear much fruit. He promised them joy and he promised them hope. And if there is no resurrection, all of it's a lie. All of this depends upon Jesus Christ coming back from the dead. This is always what Jesus had in view. It wasn't always clearly said, but this is always what he promised. This is good news because Jesus is not dead. This is good news for us because at the resurrection, that is when everything that Jesus promised came true and he proved to be the faithful one from God. Yet what I want us to see this morning is what Jesus is telling his disciples in these last verses of the Upper Room Discourse. And I want us to see three things. That he promised them a true picture of the life of a disciple. He promised them a true picture of a life of prayer. And he promised them a true picture of of a life of tribulation. A picture of what a life of the disciple was going to look like, a picture of what prayer was going to look like in a prayer, a picture of what tribulation was going to look like. Before we begin, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is nothing that I can say this morning that will change a heart. There is nothing that I can say this morning that will reveal the glory of Jesus Christ except by the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, we ask that you are at work this morning in our lives. We ask that you Soften our hearts and open our ears to the good news of Jesus Christ. That he did die for our sins, but on the third day he rose again for the glory of your great name. Father, I lift up Jonathan Pence. Lord, please heal him. Lord, I pray for Mary Elizabeth. Please heal her. Lord, we rejoice this morning that John Sidney was able to come home. We rejoice this morning that Peggy Bowers' tests came back positive. We rejoice this morning because you have given us what we cannot offer ourselves. Lord, please go before us in our small groups in our men's and women's Bible studies, in our catechism clubs, in our adult groups, in our youth groups. Lord, we can be a part of different clubs and meetings. But may we be a people that gather together to learn about who you are and what you have done for us in Christ. May we gather in these meetings to be encouraged and to encourage one another how to live faithfully 
in the community that you have placed us. May every member of this church stand for the glory of Christ and the good of his name in Fayette County. May we call this county to repentance when it's lost in its sin. Father, we look at this county, we look at how it's continuing to grow. Give us courage to speak the truth of Jesus. Lord, we lift up our sister church, College Hill, this morning as they lost their sanctuary in a fire last night. Lord, please bless that congregation. As they meet in their fellowship hall this morning, give them hope. Give them joy in what you are doing amongst their midst. Father, we pray for our president and for our vice president. Give them wisdom. Give them wisdom that does not come from themselves, but that only comes from Christ. Father, we pray for Ukraine. Bring your peace in heaven to earth. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. A picture of the true life of a disciple. Last week, I made a really big deal about the importance of this context that Jesus is speaking directly to 11 disciples. And if we miss why Jesus is telling these disciples these things, we will miss how we can apply those things to our lives. This is what Jesus says to his disciples in verses 16 verse through 22. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us, a little while, and you will not see me, in a little while you will see me again? Now, there's great debate about what Jesus is actually talking about. Many commentators, John Calvin included, actually think that Jesus is talking about when he will ascend into heaven, they will no longer see him. And then in a little while, he will come back from heaven, bringing the end of the known cosmos, bringing forth the new heavens and the new earth. But I believe for different reasons and with many other commentaries that that is actually not what Jesus is talking about in this context. And I'll give you three reasons why. First, he describes this little while that it will be with mourning, weeping, and with sorrow. This does not describe the attitudes of the disciples at Pentecost. When Jesus ascended up into heaven, they were ecstatic. They were overjoyed. Not because Jesus was leaving, but that God had given them the promised Holy Spirit. And that is where we see Peter preach with power at Pentecost. The second reason is that what we see is that Jesus speaks of that day in which the circumstances of the disciples would change. Now, that didn't happen at the day of Pentecost. The day that their circumstances changed was directly after the resurrection from the dead. The third reason is this 
story, this analogy of a woman giving birth. D.A. Carson reminds us that at chi- in chi- the, the vision of childbirth, the analogy of childbirth, is something that the Old Testament constantly illustrated to talk about the troubles of God's people and how they must rele- receive relief and that this relief was the promised messianic, sal- messianic salvation. So using this idea of what the Old Testament, how it viewed pregnancy and childbearing, especially in Isaiah chapter 26, we understand what Jesus is talking about is the salvation that he will bring. Now, I didn't call anybody, or I didn't ask my wife about this topic. Jesus said it. I didn't say it. I didn't say that as soon as the baby comes out, they will remember their pain no more. That's what Jesus said, not me. Just want to make that clear. But what I think Jesus is actually talking about, what I think Jesus is preparing his disciples for, is that in less than 24 hours, you are going to be filled with sorrow because I'm going to be dead. They're going to take my body down and they're going to put me in a cave and put a stone over it so that you cannot come and take my body. And you will be filled with sorrow and grief and weeping. Every time this word in the Greek is used to to weep in John always has to deal, always has to do with someone dying. So here, Jesus is specifically telling his disciples, this is what you will go through. You will go through this pain and the world is going to rejoice because the world is going to think that it has just won. But much like like childbirth, it is through the suffering and the pain. It's not that suffering and pain was over here and joy and happiness was over here, but it's actually through the process of the pain that the disciples will receive joy and happiness. This is what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the death and his resurrection from the dead. Through the child pains, through his death, through the pain that he will bear for them, they will receive joy. Isn't it interesting? In John chapter 3, what does he tell Nicodemus? You must be born again. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is telling his disciples, unless you are born again, you will not be my disciples. And just as the curse, just as the curse brought the pain of childbearing on Eve, Jesus brings life because he bore the curse for us upon the cross. Through the curse, the cursed one on the tree that led to Christ's death, 
because of his resurrection, we receive new life. We bear our shame no more. Just as Adam's sin brought death, Jesus' death brought us life. This is what his disciples needed to hear. Because in 24 hours, less than 24 hours, and then again in 72 hours, Jesus was going to reveal the great curse that he bore for the sins of his people that will lead them to everlasting joy. Because his promise was, you will live forever. So Jesus promised a true picture of what the life of a disciple looks like. Doesn't that sound a lot like what our lives sound like? As we looked just a few weeks ago, the world will hate us because the world hates Jesus. Our life is a struggle as the people of God. Our life is a struggle to be faithful, to do as God has commanded us. And here's the promise of what a life of a disciple looks like. It's just for a little while. It's interesting. The Apostle Paul tells us that he has a thorn in his flesh. We don't know what it is. People might say they know what it is. We, we don't know what it is. But this is what we do know, that Christ never took it from him because his eyes were not set on the trouble that Paul faced then. His eyes were set in resurrection glory where he would have no pain no more, where he would have pain no more. The life of a disciple is one that is met with sorrow and weeping. But the promise is the resurrection and the life to come. Jesus also promised them a true picture of a life of prayer. And there's a story that during the Civil War, there was a soldier who lost both his brother and his dad on the same day. And he wanted to go see the president and plead his case. And he was given a pass to do so. So he went to the White House and was told by the guard on duty, you can't go see the president. Don't you know that the, there's a war going on? The president is very busy. Now go away. So the young soldier left, and he was sitting on a little park bench not far from the White House, and a little boy came up to him. And the lad said to the soldier, why are you looking so unhappy? What's wrong? And the soldier looked at him and told the boy what had happened. He told him of his situation back at home. He explained that his mother and his sister had no one to help look after the farm. And the little boy listened and said, I can help you. I know what to do. And he took the soldier by the hand and led him to the front gate of the White House. And he went straight into the White House and no guard said anything to him. They walked straight to the front door. They went inside, past the generals, past the high-ranking officials, and no one said a word to them. 
And why didn't anyone stop them? They walked straight into the Oval Office, went to the president, and no one stopped them. Well, the boy was Todd Lincoln. He was the son of the president. No one asks the son when he wants to go see his father. And so this soldier went, and the son said, Daddy, this soldier needs to talk to you. And the soldier pled his case, and he was able to go and leave to save his family. It is through Jesus that we have access to the Father. It is because of what Jesus has done on the cross, and it is because Jesus was raised from the dead that we are able to do what Jesus promises that we will be able to do. And this is the third time he has made this promise in these chapters. For the third time, he says, anything that you ask, the Father will give you. Because we pray through the name of the Son. We pray through the name of the one who took down the curtain that kept us from the presence of the Father. But it's even better than that. Because this promise is that he will listen to you because he loves you. This new era, as Jesus said, on this day, as he says in verse 23, this new era of the Spirit means that the disciples will have this prayer life. Well, they do not need an intercessory. They are able to go straight to the Father, make the request, Father, please help us. And this is because at the ascension, Jesus will be at the Father's side. After his resurrection, he went to the Father's side, and through our union with the Son, we have direct access to prayer to God the Father. Is this how you pray? Because this is the prayer life that Jesus is promising his disciples on this last night. This new life that I'm giving you opens a way to new prayer straight to the Father, and he will listen to you. Do we pray as though God is listening to us? Are we praying in this way? Are we teaching our children to pray in this way? Jesus promised them a true picture of the life of a disciple. He promised them a true picture of the life of prayer. And he also promises them a true picture of life of tribulation. Now, I kind of got this at, at my first verse. I jumped ahead. But this is what he tells his disciples. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each at his own town, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The disciples have no idea what's getting ready to happen. 
to its full extent. The disciples have only been told to trust in Jesus. Because what Jesus says here at the end of this discourse is the perfect picture of what our salvation cost. A perfect picture of what happened upon the cross. Jesus was all alone because his disciples abandoned him. Jesus died alone, bearing our sin upon the cross. And he was up there alone. But he said that's okay. Because he doesn't need us. He needed the Father by his side. We add nothing to our salvation. We bring nothing to require us salvation. We have nothing that will earn us a right standing with God the Father Almighty. Jesus did, alone, did it alone upon the cross. That is how much Jesus loves us. Jesus was on a mission to accomplish our redemption, and he didn't ask his disciples for anything. And he also promised them that in me you will have peace, yet in the world you will have tribulation. If anyone has ever told you that becoming a Christian means all of life's problems will go away, or that following Jesus will be easy, or that being a disciple of Jesus will require anything except complete rejection from the world, they are lying to you. Because that's not what Jesus says. But here's the promise that Jesus gives his disciples. It's in the very last verse. But take heart. I have overcome the world. When we look at this world around us, we look at the troubles that we face, the troubles that we might face, we look that Christianity might be disregarded by our country. We look that there's missionaries that are actually dying and professing faith in Jesus Christ. This is what our mantra should be. We offer nothing for our salvation. It is by Jesus Christ alone. He did not need our help to overcome the world. It is not us versus the world. Jesus has already won the battle. The war is finished. You need to bring nothing to come to this table. We come by faith in the perfect, satisfying work of Jesus Christ, in him crucified, him resurrected from the dead. He is at the right hand of the Father right now interceding for us. That's the story of our redemption. And this is what is folly to the world. The world doesn't get weakness. The world doesn't get suffering for the benefit of others. 
the world doesn't get Jesus. And you might have a lot of questions about this. Wait until Easter. That is when all of our questions are answered. Because that's when all the promises of God are fulfilled in Christ. Amen. If you have your Trinity hymnal, please turn it to page 845. Will you please stand with me as we confess the Apostles' Creed? Church, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he should come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated.